As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. This is Auto Line After Hours with John McElroy and Gary Vasilash, episode 358 for December 9th of 2016, where Henry Ford stood. Watch AutoLine After Hours live at AutoLine.tv every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 p.m. Pacific. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Gary. We're back in the studio, man. It's been a while. It's been a I mean, long I, time. It's been different. like forever. It's I know. We were in L.A. We were in Napa. Yeah. We were all over the place, but now... We're in Detroit. Yeah. Where we belong. Back in the Motor City. Exactly. We've we got to let everybody know, too, that Joe Sesney from the Oakland Press is joining us today. Joe, it's great to have you here. Thank you. We've got all kinds of good stuff to talk about. There's never a dull moment in this industry. Not at all. Never. But we've got to let everybody know our special guest right now is Nancy Darga. She's the executive director of the Paquette Museum. So in a, in a thumbnail here, Nancy, what's the Paquette Museum? Well, to me, it's the most exciting place on the planet because it changed the world. Um, it's the oldest car factory in America, and it's where the Model T was invented by Henry Ford. Oldest existing plant Correct. in America because there were some others that were older than it. Correct. But they don't exist anymore. They don't exist anymore. So, yeah, the Paquette plan is, uh, goes back to what, about 1904? Four. Four. Wow. And it was the first plant that Henry Ford purposely built to build cars, correct? Yes, it's the first plant built by Ford, Ford, Ford Motor. He rented some space on Bagley, Mack Avenue before that, and then Bagley before that. Well, Bagley is where his house was, right? Isn't that where right. he first developed the quadricycle? Correct. Mm -hmm. And then he did have a plant on Mack Avenue, on but Mack he, Avenue. he got that place. He didn't build it. So no. I didn't realize, Joe, that he... This was the first plant that Henry Ford had built. Yeah, from the ground up. So mm -hmm. it's a forerunner of Highland Park and the Rouge and everything that came after that. Yeah. And, uh, but later on, it, what, uh, Ford got rid of the plant and Studebaker took it over, right? Well, you know, the Model T changed uh, the whole dynamics of the company after it got an order for 12,000 12, cars. <laughs> it grew out. It grew out of the space within six years. So... 
Studebaker came and bought it, and Studebaker stayed there in 1933. They actually put this huge addition that's even bigger than the Piquette plant, and they bought the whole, you know, the whole block and and the powerhouse, everything uh, Studebaker did. But um, Henry started uh, the Piquette plant as his first venture, and then um, he started the Model A, and then, as you know, he did eight alphabet cars in that building. Um, ultimately, he produced about 45,000 cars out of there. Out of Piquette? Yeah. That's a lot of cars. That's a lot of cars. For that, back in that day. Well, it's a 56-foot wide, 402 feet long textile mill. It was really because he patterned it after a textile mill. And um, he filled that up pretty quick when the Model T got launched. And was it a moving assembly line that he put in there, or did they build it in station? They, it was stationary assembly there, but they did break the manufacturing record in June of 1908. They made 101 cars in 10 hours. So that was incredible for stationary assembly. And I think that's when they started ruminating. When they, when they had to build 12,000 cars all at once, they were like, we can't, we got to we got to be faster, better, uh, more efficient, and uh, of course they had Mr. Martin come in and and tackle that problem. And um, as you know, when he went to Highland Park, he still didn't start the assembly line right off the bat at Highland Park, but he goes from sixty-seven thousand some square feet to over a million in Highland Park. And in Piquette, he's got the building adjacent to the Milwaukee Junction Rail Line. In Highland Park, the rail line goes right through the darn building. So you're talking about an incredible leap in in uh, production capability in Highland Park versus. So apparently, what they did was they actually did the first assembly line experiment one Sunday morning in July of, of uh, 1908 at the Paquette plant. And you, you know. I am surrounded by fortifiles, and they argue constantly over that issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, so apparently they, they laid it all out, and then they just came to the conclusion that this would work. But the problem was that they were building the cars, as you said. I mean, they, they had big demand for vehicles, and so in order to install the assembly line, they would have had to, you know, redo the facility, and they're like, we're not going to do this. We have cars to build. So no, they don't do that now. Let's they just, just move it to, to another part of the plant. to build the cars. And so right. when they built Highland Park, then they set it up saying, okay, if we do this, and they didn't do that for, for like five years later before they actually decided that they would have a moving assembly line, that they did it. But they had the, the wherewithal to do it versus, as you said, the plant is comparatively small on Paquette. And uh, so you don't have room for, for tear up and... Uh, and, and redoing You know what am, really kind of amazes me? I get a lot of, of school groups in, and they want to know about a certain aspect of, of uh, what Henry did there, you know, what he did to produce cars, what he did to, to start the co to co company. If you think about it, you had, at the time that Henry built that uh, plant on the Milwaukee Junction rail line, you already had about a dozen car companies there. Right around that immediate Right in area. the Milwaukee Junction. And it ultimately ended up from 22 to 25 car companies. But if you look at what's still there, it, it, the Ford Motor, and you have to ask yourself, why, why is it? And the thing that strikes me, and I'm not a, a, a gearhead, although I, I love listening to them talk all day long, but what really strikes me is they were always... Uh, innovative. 
They were always another step, another step, another step. If there's anything that we can impair in our kids when they come through that plant is you don't need a lot of technology. They did it all with just simple things. The, um, the kids are amazed at how how rudimentary they were working with things, but yet they revolutionized vanadium steel with Mr. Harold Wills, the flywheel magneto with uh, uh, Spider Huff, the fact that they brought women in that plant to uh, you know to wire the the flywheel magneto. So they have the first women in the auto industry. I believe it's the first women. We're still debating that one, too. But it's we're one of the first, for sure. We're definitely one of the first, for sure. So it's an incredible. But the National Dealership Organization got launched out of that. And I don't think when the kids are thinking about cars and stuff, they think about there's a business structure that's got to be uh, created, too, like Mr. Cousins and and, and that because then when they go to Highland Park, they re- they started the revolution at Paquette, but it was full force at Highland Park when they introduced that $5 day and the, uh, the automated assembly. Speaking line. of the structure, about what about how does Paquette fit in today, into today's world? What What's your mission? Where did you get started? And how are you going to keep it going? And I think those are all sort of questions that probably are on the minds of some of our viewers out there today. Well, I love you for asking that question because I'm one of the women that launched the campaign to start the Save the Historic Auto Sites. I think that that's an incredible part of our American history that needs to be saved. Um, Manufacturing made us an, an, um, an industrial might and, and manufacturing is going to keep us in industrial might. And if we if we lose the technology that comes out of that, we're going to be a mess. And um, it, I think what's important for me about the Paquette plant, the Department of Interior said, we think that this is one of the most significant auto sites in the world. And uh, they called me up a couple months ago and wanted to look at the site as a possible World Heritage Site. And um, it looks like we're not going to make the list right now um, because they want us to come up with some of the original manufacturing, um, you know, equipment. equipment. Although I tried to explain to a bunch of people in Washington, it's an assembly plant, not a manufacturing plant, but they didn't quite get it. Um, But we've we've now found the turbine. Uh, that's in storage at the Henry Turbine meaning which would have generated electricity. The, the, yeah, the original one, there was two. One of them is still alive, and we got it. We have one line shaft that's still in the beams, which to me is, I love that. I look at it, it's like, God, I just wish I could get some belts, you know. Yeah, on and it. we should explain that to the audience, too, because back in the day, you had all different kinds of equipment in the plant, but they did not have their own individual electric motors to run that piece of equipment. So they ran these big, long shafts through the ceiling, and then you would have a leather belt. It wasn't even rubber at the time. Leather belts that would attach to pulleys on that shaft and go down to your machine and run it. So you found a little piece of the shaft, eh? But our vision, our mission is to preserve and interpret that, uh, what happened in that building, but also about the automotive heritage of the whole Detroit metro area. If... But our vision is to inspire the next generation to be the tinkers who become titans, you know, to be the people who who take a, an idea and go 
exponentially with it. And that's what we're, uh, we're working with Lawrence Tech right now on a robot project in, um, to make a robot tour guide. It's kind of fun. And uh, if we get it working, great. If we don't, we'll just keep working on it. You know, that's the <laughs> motto. Um, we did get it. We just recently got a grant to uh, do a exhibit in the experimental secret room, or I should say, secret experimental room, and we got it through the WA3 or the Woodward Avenue Action Association. And I I'm so excited because uh, we hired Mary Seahorse and Bob Casey, who was the former curator of transportation at the Henry Ford, is on our board. They have been researching every hole in the floor every bolt in the ceiling, everything. We already have an archaeological industrial study done by Richard Anderson, but it's so exciting. They take pictures, and they 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 know that that was a double door. That now, hold on, because you've got to take a step backward and explain what this room is all about. It's a, it's a very special room oh, very within special. the plant on the second floor, but explain to the audience what this room was all about. Well, on the third floor in the back of the building near the, oh, railroad, okay. uh, the railroad track, Henry said, let's build some walls and section off an area, and we're going to come up with a new, uh, a better engine. And so he took the N engine from his Model N, and uh, which was a dual block engine, and he came up with a single block. His whole goal was to make an affordable indestructible, uh, easy to operate, and easy to fix with hand tools motor, which was, which is why I love it when uh, Bob Casey says, this is, it started out as evolutionary, but it went revolutionary as soon as he made it affordable and fixable by hand because we were no longer producing for the affluent or the rich. We were now producing for the masses, and that changed the whole dynamic. Right. Because it changed the whole transportation structure all over the world, in the United States, and everywhere else. And, uh, but my understanding is they did more than the engine there. That is where the Model T was designed. That's where the Model T was designed, and uh, there was two rooms. One was a drafting room, and the other one, he had his mother's rocking chair and a chalkboard in. We're in the process of, of uh, recreating that room so that people can understand what took place in the room. And um, it, it, it's exciting because it had locking doors and only a few people had a key to it. Hence why you call it the secret, the secret room. Only very few room. people were allowed yeah. in there. And there was more than one experimental room in there, but this was the secret one, you know, that was in there. And Joseph Gollum, who was an, uh, an Hungarian engineer from Budapest, was the head draftsman in there. I believe Harold Wills was in there. And we understand that Etzel, uh, Etzel went in there after school, so he could come and go as he wanted in the room. So that's that would be kind of fun to have your kid see your secrets uh, being uh, built. But that's where the Model T was. And this year we've had about 18,000 visitors. But since 2013, where I started there, we've had 80 people make pilgrimages, eight, p- people from 80 countries mm-hmm. make pilgrimages to so, so you mentioned you mentioned the plant was an, is an assembly plant, and you, we were talking about the engine here. Now, originally Henry was getting engines from the Dodge brothers. Yes. So did that continue? I mean, is that where the engines that were used in the Paquette plant came from, or did he have his own engine manufacturing facility somewhere that 
he was bringing in. I'm glad you brought that up because it really confuses people because if you walk on our main floor, you see the alphabet cars on one side and you see all of the all the uh, auto pioneers from Detroit on the left side who actually have some tie or connection to the Milwaukee Junction story or to Henry. And we have Dodge. So, in fact, the Dodge family had their family reunion at our plant, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but it confuses me. But the, they don't realize that John and Horace Dodge were original investors and that they were suppliers. They were uh, uh, machinists. They had their own machine shop, and they were suppliers, and they did supply uh, Henry with, with uh, the engines. But the very existence of the plant kind of points to the one of the things that about Detroit, that this was the center of this innovation, and a lot of this history is in danger of being lost unless people like yourself and others can help collect it and kind of tell the story behind all these buildings and all this information that's still available in, within the city. And I think that's one of the important things about this plant, isn't it? I think it's really super, super important that we remember that the taproot of our city came out of the research and development of automobiles. And if you think about it, the automobile industry took man out of the mud and ended up putting him on the moon. Literally, they did. And and our kids are always amazed when I tell the them. The Wright brothers might argue that point. Well, <laughs> yeah, but think about it. If you think about it, Chrysler did the Saturn rockets, and GM did the the lunar buggy, and Henry and Ford did the uh, uh, refrigeration or whatever we, the hydrology to get through the burning part of the atmosphere. That reached. Cars are so much more than just four wheels on a chassis. The research and development that comes out of it is part of our DNA in Detroit. And I think we, and in Michigan, we should be celebrating. We should be fighting very hard to preserve it, which is why a bunch of private citizens saved the Paquette plant. You know, and not only that, they ended up their own money to save it. That's an amazing story. Yeah, this is not being funded by the Ford Motor Company or some big endowment, although you're starting to get uh, donations. We're, we're, hoping to ch- we're hoping to to partner with them. And, you know, they've been, they've been very kind to us. Uh, they have their functions there, and, and Etzel kindly um, sponsored all the windows when we started that first project to the facade. But I have people come all the way from Milford, Michigan, Brighton, Michigan, um, Every Monday, they're called the window team, and they drink terrible coffee, eat donuts, and they rebuild 355 windows. We only have 16 left to build right now. They built their own factory in the back, all with original materials. They even mill their own wood when you have to splice in, and Guardian Glass gave us the glass. Think about that. Think these guys have been doing this since for almost 15 years. They've been coming religiously on Monday, and now they're like a big family, you know. They tease each other and everything. But they're rebuilding that with their own hands. I wish I could get—I have a few younger folks coming in, but if kids could see the power of these volunteers that come in there and save this building— People told us we were nuts when we bought this building. Especially for the area of the city oh, it, that it's in. It was, aban- it was surrounded by abandoned factories, Fisher 21, Fisher 23, 
the uh, the old Cadillac building, you know, that finally burned down, and it was a a dark and go. It was worse than Harry Potter. Anything you see in a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> and I remember J- uh, Jerry Mitchell, who's the president of our board, uh, who also bought uh, Henry Ford and Clara Ford's house on Edison Street in Detroit. He said, "We got to save this." I said, "You're right. We do. We do." Because we changed the world here in Detroit, and we don't get it, and we don't celebrate it. Are, are there other buildings that were historic? You were mentioning earlier how many car companies were around that Milwaukee Junction. Um, are you guys the only game in town at this point, or are there other facilities that are? Regal just uh, Regal. Uh, the Regal got turned. Uh, of course, Cadillac got burned. And uh, Wayne got torn down by Studebaker to put the addition on Piquette. Uh, Regal just recently uh, met some demise with fire, and the Fisher buildings are still there. Although they look totally bombed out. They look bombed out, but so does the Coliseum, and 16 million people go there every year to see it <laughs> because of the story that was I was in those there. Fisher plants when they were still making okay. chassis trucks. My father-in-law just... Uh, recently passed away, and he closed Fisher 21. No kidding. And um, um, I think there's such a huge story to tell in Milwaukee. Milwaukee Junction is the Silicon Valley of America in the turn of the century, and we we need to get we need to have our people get it. They need to understand the story that happened happened there. Not only in the production of the car, but the arsenal of democracy. Part of that story is in there, in there too. And it's extremely, extremely important that um, we honor it. We honor it. Um, and we, because the best fruit comes from trees that preserve the roots. And if we're going to flourish, and if we're going to grow and bloom, we have to preserve our roots, because that builds our capacity to produce and and um i don't regret um you know they pulled me out of retirement to come to paquette and i wouldn't have done it if i didn't think it was one of the most significant buildings uh that tells the story of the automobile heritage when people come visit are they people who are interested in the auto industry are they people interested in architecture are they people interested in history all the above none of the above they all have their own interests, but then we, uh, we're contagious. They come in that door, and they, they uh, I had a bunch of architect students come in uh, this summer, and they wanted to go on the roof, and they wanted to see the original structure of the roof and everything. Our roof is cool. It's like being in the Mary Potter, uh, the... Um, Mary Poppins movie, I'm waiting for the chimney sweeps to come out, you know. Uh, and you can see all these industrial roofs and, and stovepipes and everything. It's really cool up there. I shouldn't let that out because <laughs> now kids are going to want to go out there. But it's very cool up there. And they were up there and they were doing it. And I can see that the building is interesting, but what happened in that building is amazing. It's well, just amazing. I, I know. I think that's one of the things I've always thought about. Detroit is, is that it actually needs a bigger museum, bigger than the Henry Ford, bigger than, that tells the whole story about the automobile industry in the, in the 20th century. And uh, Do we need a museum? I we think, we no. have the fabric of that story still oh, there. You, you, Paquette is really the main part of it. I think it's much more real mm-hmm. to experience it. 
And that's what kids look, come into, uh, we're not a, they call us a museum, but we're not an ex- museum because we're, we're the actual, we're the original. Mm-hmm. We're real. And, I, and kids will come in there and go, God, I didn't know this was here. This is, this is, this is something, you know, because they can't pinpoint it. It's, it's the original building, the original paint peeling off the walls. And where can you walk? Anywhere in this world, other than maybe uh, Fairlane, on the same floors mm-hmm. that the auto pioneers that totally revolutionized everything walked. Where can you stand on that floor and you say, Henry Ford stood here, James Cousins stood here, Harold Will stood here, John and Horace Dodge stood here. Where can you go in one place like that? And and just and it's full of oil and it's cracked and do not wear high heels <laughs> and uh, it it it's just you can feel it you can feel the spirit of it I can I um, get the privilege of using Spider Hoff's laboratory as my office and I sit there sometimes and I think okay Ed give me a good idea here I can <laughs> I can use one and uh, it's just an amazing it has a, it kind of has its own kind of vibe when you go in there. Okay, so we got to let everybody know. I think you've got our whole audience interested in going to the plan. When are you open? What's it cost to go uh, inside and all that? We are now open year-round. We're in our winter hours now. We're open uh, Friday and Saturday from 10 o'clock until 4 o'clock. We're open during the whole two weeks of the auto show, and we are open during Autorama. In the summer, we're open Wednesday through Sunday, 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock. We have group tours. Kids under 12 are free. Uh, Seniors are 10. Group tours are 8. And then we ask for a $12 donation at the door from adults. I should add, too, because my wife and I went there this summer, had a great time, really enjoyed it. You've got some terrific docents as well. So if you go into the plant and start going on the tour, just start asking them questions. They're walking encyclopedias. So it's another uh, attraction for going to the plant. You know, you just don't walk around on your own. Get one of the docents and start asking questions. I think that's why we got the Award of Excellence two years in a row from TripAdvisor is from our docents. Mm-hmm. They're very learned, but they're funny, yeah. and they're, they're not stodgy. They're, they're, you know, they'll play all. with you. Some are, they're mostly engineers. Um, and we just did the first time we did the Ghosts of Paquette, and I didn't realize it, but they're hams, too. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, they, were, uh, they researched for a whole year a particular character that actually worked in Paquette. And um, it was fun. It, um, and we didn't portray Henry. We don't want to. Um, but people came in. It became real because this person actually worked at this spot in the, you know, did, and did this and, and created that. And it was a fun, um, a fun event. On the uh, September, the weekend of September 27th every year is the Model T birthday, and you get free Model T rides. And I love to see kids' faces when they get into Model T. They are just like, it's better than anything you get at Cedar Point. I mean, really, <laughs> it really is. Well, Nancy Darga, thanks so much for coming on and telling us all about the Paquette plant. Really nice to know about it, and I'm sure our audience learned a lot. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, good. Uh, we got more to talk about things going on in the automotive industry here. But first, we're going to give a break, take a break, because we got to give a shout out to our good friends at Lear. Lear Connexus offers a parental controls application with geofencing that sends notifications regarding driving behavior and location, including curfew alerts, acceleration alerts, and speed alerts. All delivered to a smartphone application that includes vehicle location, driver notifications, and a report card of driving history, including notifications when predefined geographic boundaries are crossed. For more information, visit Lear.com. Well, we're back. Pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, and this, is. This, is, this is not the official number for today, but I, I found it interesting that when that plant was built, it um, was a, an investment of $76,500. And I started thinking, $76,000, you know, that's, that's not very much money. So I, I went to the Ford website and started pricing a King Ranch <laughs> F-350, and I readily got up to 74835 net. So... <laughs> Not adjusted for inflation, of course, right. but, uh, but as she was saying, you know, that, that people did so much with so little. And, uh, well, they've done a whole lot with so little, too, because I was in that plant when it was first saved. And, I mean, it was nothing. It was, you know, well, it is full pretty, of trash. And, it's a pretty amazing story to, to just volunteers came and saved that plant from yeah. you know, obliteration, basically, mm-hmm. or, or recovered it from, uh, from its... Yeah, well, look, so so many of uh, the great plants are gone. I mean, right. they're just right. gone. There's a, a few hulks, you know, one of which the Packard plant is now going through something of a revival, but that's a, a land development thing. They're not trying to restore the plant. Right. That's why I love what they've done with this Paquette plant. And I wish somebody would do the same with the Highland Park plant. I think that's worth or at well, least part of it's worth preserving. Oh, certainly. That, <laughs> I've always thought that the museum should go. I mean, because that... Because you have a million square feet, and you can probably tell the story in a mm-hmm. in the whole uh, under one roof. Yeah, but you know, speak, speaking of Ford, it was it was interesting. So I, I was looking at something, um, you know, Ford China sales, which are doing very well for Ford. And uh, for so, now, uh, I'll add in later. Go all right, ahead. but so so for for the people who don't know, in press releases, they always have this thing at the bottom that's called boilerplate, and boilerplate is basically a description of the company so it doesn't matter what it is there is this this description that is that is tagged on to every every uh, news release for any company and so you know Ford Ford Motor Company is a global automotive automotive and mobility company based in Dearborn Michigan well, they've added some words huh? they've added some words this is very interesting so with about uh, 200,000 203,000 employees, 62 plants worldwide. The company's core business includes designing, manufacturing, and marketing and servicing a full line of Ford cars, trucks, and SUVs, as well as Lincoln luxury vehicles. Now listen to this. To expand its business model, Ford is aggressively pursuing emerging opportunities with investments in electrification, autonomy, and mobility. So they're they're building that into their description of themselves now. Yeah, that's a new one. I, right. I, I don't make a habit of really reading, reading boilerplate. Boiler right. So thank you for doing so, Gary. <laughs> but I mean, but, okay, so so I mean, <laughs> what do we think? Do we think this is wishful thinking? Do we think, as you've suggested many times, that uh, this is this is to uh, appeal to people on Wall Street to pay more attention? To, well, part uh, of it is, you know, because Wall Street will not reward traditional automakers. No. And uh, this is a way to say that, hey, look at us. I mm-hmm. mean, this is, we're, 
we're cool. We we're we're in we're in the game. We're uh, but I don't, I don't think it's all window dressing either. I, I, I no, I think there are there is a very serious challenge here that they have to address, and that and it includes electric uh, electrification and includes uh, autonomy and mm-hmm. it includes future business models for how people are going to buy and use cars. And yeah, right. if they are going to even buy them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so these are all serious challenges that they face. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I just I just thought that was just I mean, I don't know how long it's been there. But I mean, it just caught my eye. I'm like, whoa, this is this is this is different. I mean, they're just not about, you know, designing and manufacturing vehicles. Now they're about electrification and mobility and autonomy and and so on, which is a far, far cry from uh, the 1903 Paquette plant. Well, actually, you know, the Paquette plant really was about mobility, mobility for its day. And, for you know, day, right. uh, you know, what was the line that Alan Mulally was always quoting from Henry Ford, the original Henry Ford? Well, uh, Henry Ford had a couple of famous things that he says. He says, I invented the modern world and was one of the things that he said, which is yeah. which when you go back and think about it is probably true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think the, the line that Mo, uh, uh, Mulally always used was something that Ford said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, mobility for all. Right. I, yeah. I think he said mobility for all mankind. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, e- even the people at Ford today are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, Henry kind of had the vision there. Well, I mean, I, I think that's playing around with words a bit. But, yeah, he was a leader for mobility in his day. Mm-hmm. And he did have a very, you know, he, he, he did have a concept of... of Taking it forward of, of changing everything, right? Way, uh, and he wasn't afraid to do it. I mean, he did, wasn't afraid of breaking out, mm-hmm. breaking the glass, so to speak. Hey, so. speaking of Mulally, did you guys hear today he went to Trump Tower? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I find this amazing. You know, there, there's been this whole parade of people going to Trump Tower up and down the elevators. Uh, what the no, heck the, is Alan Mulally talking to Donald Trump no, about? I mean, he, he, there's a Starbucks in there. Maybe he just wanted to get a coffee. Um, <laughs> well, well, well I mean, actually, there. there's a lot of things he could talk about. I guess he could talk. He sits on the board of what? Google. Google. Yeah. He was on Bo. He was with Boeing, yeah. and he was with Ford. So those are all three of uh, right. So Gary, you would no. I mean, there's. there's I, mean, I, I would think there's the, the certainly the you know the announcement about uh, Air Force One and the cost associated with it and as you said joe that i mean he was at boeing for many many years yeah. and so it, it could have been you know a courtesy call related to boeing um you know there was large criticism that um ford had during the campaign uh, oddly for you know having facilities that aren't necessarily in the united states um maybe he was explaining to them the way the auto industry actually works meaning it's a global industry and therefore you do have plants in places like Mexico, um, China, China. Um, you know, it, it could be, you know, something to do with Google. Who knows? Um, but I'm not, I, I don't think he's 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 in in line for a cabinet position. Probably not. I even asked uh, Malali once, would you ever run for office? Because when he got going on his whole transformation thing at Ford and it was successful, he started talking about beyond Ford. You know, because he had a process that absolutely did turn the, the the company around. And I'm talking from a working relationship and even a culture standpoint. So I asked him, would you ever run for office? And he essentially said, no, he would never want to run for office. He may want to serve, but he didn't want to do all this electioneering and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't think 
Trump called him to the tower to talk about, you know, the, the cost of a 747. I, I don't know. I think there's something bigger at work here. Well, Trump did invite Al Gore to come and have right. a chat. Yeah. Too, so, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio. Or... <laughs> and and, and he, he did put together that, that uh, panel of business executives and Mary Mary Farah's on that. On it. Right. Yeah. So was that another slap at Ford? You know, uh, you know, he's been after Ford all, you know, since he's, before the primaries. Right. Jeez. And and now Mary Barra gets appointed to this board of advisors or right. business advisors or whatever. Nobody in Ford. And and now he invites the ex-CEO, Alan Mulally, of the company to pay a visit. So. so if it had to do with Ford, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't Mark Fields be the guy? Yeah, you would think. Well, <laughs> or maybe not, I guess. Right. Or Bill. Or Bill, possibly, yeah. Bill's Bill's been trying to get talk to Trump for <laughs> for several I months. I did talk. Yeah. yeah, I actually did. For a, I think they had a brief conversation at some point, mm-hmm. according to Bill. Um, well, I, I thought that early on, Trump, I mean, uh, Mark Fields and Bill Ford Jr. had gone to Trump Tower to try and mm-hmm. set them straight on what was Ford's policy in terms mm-hmm. of Mexico and manufacturing in the United States. Well, then his his um, his nominee for Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, is uh... Wilbur Ross is heavily involved in the automotive industry. Oh yeah, he what, exactly. owns IAC, right? Yes. And is Federal Mogul, do I have that right? Doesn't he own that? He may still have a stake in Federal Mogul, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's got. I, I, so somebody told me. Don't know. IAC makes interior components. Interior components. And, Door uh, trim, yeah, trims, mm-hmm. headliners, right? And and I believe uh, in the Wilbur Ross uh, empire, Portfolio there or... are at least six plants in Mexico. In Mexico, mm-hmm. right? Uh, of the closely associated with assembly plants belonging to Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Right. Or yeah. Fiat Chrysler. Mm-hmm. So there is there is a you know he's got Ross who is a connection to this industry. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you guys make of his appointment to the head of the EPA? Who's this guy? Uh, Pruitt? Is it? Yeah, Scott Pruitt. Not Pruitt. Not, 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 not the race car. Yeah, I right. saw that. And I thought, wow, what a, what a funny thing that is. Scott Pruitt. Uh, so the attorney general of uh, Oklahoma. Um, well, I thought the real his real background, though, is in the oil industry. He was a, an executive with Exxon. Well, apparently Oklahoma is one of the leading producers of oil and natural gas in the United States, and so there is a... Yeah, but this is a guy who has sued the EPA, right? This is a guy who is a a climate change skeptic. Right. Right. I mean, uh, here you've got the auto industry saying, hey, we need uh, some relief, you know, and the EPA's, you know, now moved up its... uh, period for public comment on the CAFE standards. It was supposed to be settled in April. Now they're trying to get it all done before the end of December so that it's a done deal before Trump gets in. Yeah, you know, is it is it going to happen? What do you guys think? Well, see, see here's, the, here's the thing that I keep getting back to is, is that, again, this is a global industry, and if you're going to make cars, you're going to sell them everywhere, okay? And if you're going to sell them everywhere, this meets places like Europe and China, and where they have tougher standards, where they have regulations, and so I. Well, they don't yet. But okay, <laughs> well, no, they they have. They have I mean, it, so I was looking. Okay, so this, the the EPA came out with a news release saying how great it was that that uh, looking at the the 2015 numbers for quote new personal vehicles unquote you know they're they're oh it's great we're getting more miles but you know the auto industry is doing a fantastic job, and so one of the things is that. 
they were they were happy about is that uh, new personal vehicles from model year 15 get 358 grams of CO2 per mile. Okay, they're like fantastic. So I converted that, and that's uh, 222.5 grams per kilometer. Okay, the regulation in the European Union is 130 grams per kilometer. Yeah. But how do they test their cars? But okay, but, but take that European car and ship it to Ann Arbor and let the EPA test but, okay, it and but, see but, what the emissions but are the delta of, on our test. The delta of nearly a hundred grams per mile. I don't think that you're going to have that that much. I think of you'd error. be surprised, Gary. I, when you look at the fuel economy ratings that, of uh, cars that you get in Europe, they're substantially higher than what they are here. Substantially higher. And part of this this whole uh, emissions cheating thing right. that VW got nailed for is because finally the European regulators are going, wait a minute, these tests are crazy. There is zero correlation between what happens on the chassis dyno right. and what happens on the road. And, and so they cheated because it was too hard to achieve. Right. Well, right? No, so, so what I'm saying is... Because they could save a lot of money well, that the too. way they did. But yeah, but they have to spend more money in order to achieve the real yeah, number. but everybody else... Right. Did it. But my point is, is simply that that, you know, we would we could blithely think, oh, you know, we can do away with the 2025 miles per gallon regulation, you know, 54.5 miles per gallon. You know, we'll have a you know, new sheriff in town and we'll just change all that. But again, if you're not making vehicles that will meet the standards elsewhere in the world, you're not going to sell those cars elsewhere in the world. And you got a problem. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, uh, we export cars already here from the U.S. that would not, that's our four export markets that don't have the same level of safety or emissions right. that the car, the, the, their, their cousin cars going down the same line have to meet. The, so I, I don't think it's from that standpoint as much as it is from a manufacturing scale basis. If you have to meet, we'll just use diesels as an example, uh, U.S. emission standards, which are the toughest in the world when you count the way we test them, uh, you have to have urea injection. In Europe, you don't really, well, as of now, you right. do. They're catching up to where we've been. But if you've got to make these little chemical companies that you, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, little chemical plants that you attach to the bottom of the car to make it uh, uh, clean, if you can make zillions of those, the cost per unit goes down. And I, I think I'm starting, this is where I'm arguing you're on your side, is that it's got to be more about manufacturing scale. Or on a global scale. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. If you take the American market out of having to meet with the Europeans and the Japanese and uh, the Chinese do, our suppliers our domestic manufacturers are not going to have the same manufacturing scale, and that will put them at a the cost. The other thing you have to realize, um, EPA's power is somewhat limited, has a little bit less power than you think, because the California Air Resources Board right. is actually the one who decides fuel economy standards in this country. Well, emission standards. Emission standards, for sure. And what the emission standards... They, they, they cannot have... But legally, they cannot have fuel economy standards. Now, if you start legislating CO2, it's a right. de facto it's, it's, fuel economy it's, it's, standard. It's, it's, right. It's, 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 right, exactly. Then you're legislating fuel economy as well when, right. once you start down that road. Right. Yeah, and those guys aren't giving up. I mean, no, they're, they're not, not letting give up, up one bit. No, they're not giving up, but I see a war coming. I see a war coming. <laughs> oh, where, a serious Where a Trump yeah. administration will say, oh, you're not going to uh, play by our EPA, new EPA rules? Oh, <laughs> you know, these states' grants that we were going to give you, guess what? 
uh, we're whacking $30 billion off what you were going to get. But I don't think California cares. I think that the issuing, I think it, I, I think this is going to be the, the real nub of it is, yeah. is that California isn't going to give in to a Trump administration. And it's just not California. They're, 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 they're also they're the, the whole West Coast. And well, the, the carb states yeah. that are on the East Coast Arizona, as well. But the remember, the, the, the carb states can only do what California does. They cannot set their own regulations. Right, right. No, they have to do what California says. Right. So what is it, 11 or 13 states? Something like that. Yeah. So Covering about 60% of the population. Yeah, it's a non-trivial number. And California is not going to give up. I agree with you guys. I see a war coming. Mm-hmm. I, over the next four years, I see a mega war coming between a Trump EPA and the California Air Resources Board. And and it may not be fought between them directly. It's all going to be about who wants money for what. Well, the other thing is, but California has litigated this for half a century, and they have the court decisions on their side. That's why they have so much power as they do. They have litigated this. This has been going on for 60 years. I mean, this isn't new. Because the city, you know, the city of Los Angeles was choking to death on right. car emissions. In the well, I mean, 1950s. I just think it gets back right. to to the fact that okay, if if we want to have a world competitive auto industry in this country, and I think we all do, then what we have to do is we have to look at the globe and right. and see what's going on elsewhere in the world, and and it's it's just not enough to say, you know what. That's, those, those numbers are too hard to reach. Oh, and we're, Gary, we're by the way, we're going to put, put on your Porsche executive hat for a minute. And you're going to sit there and you say, the Trump administration regulations or the California regulations? Which one are you going to abide by? I'm selling all my vehicles it, in California. So you're going to abide by these regulations, aren't you? One would assume. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's the other issue that's, that's in play here. Hey, look, we, uh, more to talk about here. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, right now, and then we got to come back and get Dr. Data's number. And so uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Okay, we're back. And so, so we have a number of trumpet blare and drum roll, please. It's time for Dr. Data. All right. So I, I wanted to get something that was automotive related, but topical because, as I told you, John, <laughs> when I was driving here today. There was snowing. snow. It was snowing like mad, and this this sort of ties into that. So, so Carmen, please bring up the first uh, slide. Okay, that's all one number. It's a uh, hundred thousand million billion trillion quadrillion. Did I miscount? What is that? All right. So this is this this is this is um, representative. If I had to leave a little b off the uh, off the end. That represents 100 petabytes, okay, of data. Oh. So, Carmen, please bring up the next slide. So that's oh, the amount yeah. that the Amazon snowmobile can accommodate in its 45-foot trailer. So that's 45 feet long, 8 feet wide, 9.6 feet high, weighs 68,000 pounds. And what companies do is they hook up to that thing and they download their data. And apparently... This can, this can accommodate data for storage purposes, and it can get in there in weeks versus the months that it would take ordinarily. Can you imagine? So, 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 like, so this is for companies that want to back, back up all their data. Right. They, they've, what, so, gone to the cloud right here to so, four? So, so Amazon drives. And, and Amazon truck. said, hey, the cloud. It, well, it, they have cloud services, and so they're saying right. that. But what they're saying is that's way too slow. We're going to bring a truck 
jammed full of hard drives, and you can download all your data right into our truck right. so it doesn't have to go and, over and, the air. And, and there, this truck then becomes your data repository. Yeah. And, it's nuts. Uh, it's so, crazy, man. So the snowball. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. It so was this is a real business model. This is a real business model, yeah. Amazon so, Web Services. And what was that number again? It was 100 one... petabytes. 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 I, I, I think quadrillion or zillion is a, but you still sounds need better. A, but you still need a parking space for the truck. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you have that much, I think if you have that much data, because I think it was something like the, you know, the, like the Library of Congress is only five petabytes. And, uh, but... You know, we, we were speaking about, we were talking about California, and I thought it was sort of interesting. I, I, I spotted this thing that, uh, so California's Prop 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, which passed. Now the uh, California Office of Traffic Safety is a little concerned about that because, <laughs> you know, you have, you have drunk, drunk driving laws on the books, but, you know, uh, how, do, how do you deal with uh, THC in the system? I thought they had I something. I thought they had some laws. I, I, I mean, I, I thought that was one of the things you could be prosecuted for if you were caught high behind the wheel, you could be already prosecuted. For but that. how do they know if you're high? I, the same way they do, I, mean, I don't know if it's a breathalyzer test or a blood test, but they do, do they do they check on blood that. from people? I think if you accept the, uh, well, it goes back to the breathalyzer test. If you, when you sign off to get your driver's license, you basically give them the right. Yeah, but even if they find THC in your blood, doesn't mean that you're high at the moment. You might have smoked a joint. Oh, that, weeks yeah, ago, yeah. and it's going to be in your system, but that doesn't mean you're high. Mm -hmm. No, I thought that there was something, eh, I shouldn't even say, because yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I just thought that was funny. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. But so, speaking they're, they're, of Amazon, getting into that, uh, what do you guys make of Apple submitting comments to NHTSA about autonomous cars? Well, that goes back to the question, is Apple really getting into the auto industry or not? I mean, there seems to be this huge debate about what Apple's strategy is. Well, there's really that Project is. Titan, and then they seem to... They laid a bunch of people off. Laid people off. And, but, uh, but they were laying off, if my understanding is right, mechanical engineers, battery engineers, that sort of thing. If they're submitting public commentary to NHTSA over autonomy... You don't need all those, you know, people who design cars. Right. You need people who know how to come up with so who's autonomous build software. The who's going to build the car for Apple? Well, well this they, was always so, the question. Yeah. So, so for those who are not familiar with this, so on, on November 22nd, um, Steve Kenner, who's the director of <coughs> Product Integrity, Product Integrity, wrote a five-page letter to NHTSA. And I thought I found some key comments within the letter. Let's hear it. So... The company is investing heavily in the study of machine learning and automation, is excited about the potential of automated systems in many areas, including transportation. Okay, so we have transportation there. That's in the uh, first real paragraph of the letter, because the first paragraph is just basically like, we're glad to write you a letter, and we enjoy <laughs> writing you letters. And so then another, another thing in fact, Congress recently enacted a provision in the FAST Act explicitly allowing established manufacturers to test on public roads without pursuing exemptions from FMVSS. But the FAST Act does not provide the same opportunity to new entrants. To maximize the safety benefits of automated vehicles, encourage innovation, and promote fair competition, established manufacturers and new entrants should be treated equally. Ooh, you've nailed it. Yeah, yes. so it's all They're, about new entrants. So they are thinking of building a car then well they're thinking of testing a car certainly that's yeah. why they want to be able to get on the road and the very last sentence in mr kenner's letter reads 
Apple looks forward to collaborating with NHTSA and other stakeholders so that significant societal benefits of automated vehicles can be realized safely, responsibly, and expeditiously. So, so basically, I mean, you don't sign off saying, gee whiz, you know, we're really, really interested in automobiles if we're not mm, interested in automobiles, you know, despite the fact that, you know, you talk about machine learning at the very beginning and sort of, sort of vague, but then I think he just, like, comes back and nails it. So what do you it. guys think? I mean, you know, we, we know for a fact they laid off hundreds of people that were working on Project Titan. But if you're no longer going to develop your own car, but you're still clearly by this letter to NHTSA interested in developing autonomy, is their business plan to put autonomy in a box and sell it to automakers? No, I don't think so. I don't think Apple wants to do that. I don't think that's, there's anything in the history that says that Apple is just going to sell, be like Intel and sell the chip to, to car makers. I think they want to make their own car. And whether they use uh, somebody else's body and chassis, like it might come from Chrysler or something, or Fiat Chrysler, but it'll still no, be Google, an Apple Google's car. working with those guys. They're not going to, Apple's whoever. not going to Fiat Chrysler. I, I don't think they want a car based on the layoffs. I, my guess is they want to become the industry standard for autonomy. So you sell autonomy in a box to an automaker, and now all the data flows through you, Apple. But it's still, but that still puts Apple one step removed, and I don't think Apple wants to be one step removed. I think they want the Apple on the front of the car. Okay, why, why, does, it, why does it have to be a car, though? Or it could okay. be a van, a little bus, or something. It could be one of those, yeah. It could be, it could be, it could be, it could be something it's a mobility I mean, service vehicle. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like, right. um, I mean, I'm looking at that Envy model over there that, that General Motors had, had made for uh, the World's Fair in Shanghai. Yeah. And, and so here's a little two-person, two oh, you know, low-speed okay. vehicle, that would, commuting that's vehicle. The Apple car. Okay, let's just think about this for a minute. I mean, so, so you know... We're seeing the development of, of more and more mobility services and such like in places like San Francisco. I mean, Ford has the chariot and, and so on, right? So here's Apple saying, hey, let's start looking at crowded cities. And what can we do to, you know, put our stake in the ground in crowded cities? Because we know that in crowded cities, automobiles are not going to really be the play going forward. So instead of having a, you know, 300-mile range, you know, four-passenger, fully FMVSS-compliant vehicle. What if Apple comes up with a new product, just so, sort of the same way that they, you know, had with the iP iPods right. and, and so on? Yeah, well, well then you become uh, like a competitor to Uber, and mm -hmm. you may have a contract manufacturer make the car for you. Right, but, it is, but I, which I think, think it's still probably the money of is not in the car. The money is not in the autonomous technology. The money is all in the data that's going to be flowing in and out. But I'm saying Apple's culture is not one where they take a step back and hide behind somebody else. No, they'll have a product, but I mean... But they I mean, do already, I mean, Foxconn, I mean, uh, Foxconn, Foxconn makes, makes their all stuff, the phones, right? right? I know they make all the phones, but they're not called Foxconn phones, right. are they? No. I, I, I see what you mean, of having the, the Apple logo right. on it. Yes. But what I'm getting at is I think the real money to be made... I mean, let's say Apple gets into the car-making business, and maybe it does it as a service. Uh, you know, on the, the hardware manufacturing side, it's been proven. No, I, You're going to make agree. a 10% profit margin. Apple currently makes a 40% margin. The money is in the data and monetizing that. I agree 
but I also don't think that Apple is willing to just give up its identity, its culture and its identity uh, to get into this business. I think that they will want to have that part of their as part of their core business strategy. See, and this is why I, don't, I see, this is why I don't think. I mean, to, to sort of both of your points. I mean, I don't think that. Yes, they they want an object that says Apple on it, and at the same time, they don't want to make ten percent margins. They want to make more. Right. Therefore, what they have to do is make something that isn't already oh, out it, there. They, in they great, find a different way in a different route into the business, into the I, transportation business, and this is why I think that they would make something else that isn't a car in the classic sense that are parked out in the parking lots right now. They would do something different. You know, remember their well, line, I, think, I think different. I yeah. think that's a very distinct possibility. You know, uh, what you're talking about is Ollie, which uh, we had on the show a couple of weeks ago from Local Motors. That's right. And, uh, I mean, to me, that's the ideal vehicle to put small the logo on. Small autonomous bus-like vehicle. Uh, but, I mean, and they could have variants of that. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just like the same way that, you know, you, you, you know, have a three-wheel car. What's it? The, Guy has been uh, oh Elio Elio yeah right I mean those are all or Elio Elio or whatever but he's but he's still competing as a car I mean I just I just think it's I just think it's oh you don't think if Apple showed up on his doorstep one morning and says oh Mr Elio no I'm I'm sure he would he'd sell it in a heartbeat but I just don't think that Apple would I I think Apple's culture goes Uh back to this thing of saying okay. We're going to have something that is unlike what you already have. You know, when they came out with the iPhone and you suddenly have this, this, you know, no buttons. You know, every cell phone had little buttons and there's like, no, we don't need that. We don't need that, right? Right. I mean, and and on, you know, everything they've done is, is, is just been a big change. Right. And... I think that maybe if they get into transportation, it will be a change. It'll be autonomous mm-hmm. because this guy obviously all about machine learning. And right. I just think it'll be a very simple sort of thing that, and, and not necessarily for everybody. I mean, we all have this sort of Smith, Swiss Army knife approach to automobiles. Mm-hmm. You know, they got to do everything. You know, we want to go to Traverse City right now. Right. Out in the car, yeah. drive to Traverse City. <laughs> you want to go to but, Home Depot? Right. Throw open it. Yeah. And, and so let's just say that they come up with some means of transportation that basically, you know, wouldn't be good for us out here in the suburbs. But if you were downtown where, you know, the Paquette plant is or whatever, I mean, it would take you, you know, within five miles or 10 miles or some, some limited uh, region. Okay. Before we do anything else we have to go to two phone calls that we've got that have come in so enough talking about apple enough talking about (laughs) trump i think let's see what the phone calls are about carmen let's bring in the first one Uh, this is clem zarovsky in delmont pennsylvania i keep hearing about all they want to do is keep want to build more electric powered vehicles uh they keep finding more and more carbon uh fuels like they keep finding more and more sources of oil but I don't hear anybody talking about finding more sources of electricity. So how is this going to work out? We're going to have lots of oil, but not enough electricity, and we're going to have lots of electric cars. doesn't make sense to me. Thank you. Well, he's got a good point. I mean, you know, if the whole fleet were suddenly to go electric, we could have an electric shortage right now. And we know... The, the grid in places is kind of shaky. Is one of the things. Well, I mean, I think actually a lot of the car makers, actually the Obama administration has admitted that, that they needed to re- upgrade the grid as well if you're going to have a lot of electric vehicles on the road. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and, and, you know, the whole play isn't just simply one of 
energy source availability. I mean, the, the there is that issue of things like CO2 and particulates and so on that, that right. go into the air, and, and it's it's easier to, to sequester from one smokestack than from a whole bunch of... Which is of, basically what they're doing and planning to do in, or trying to do in China. Which is to... Sequester them at, you know, at the smokestack level rather than on the diffuse vehicle level. Right. So, so I mean, that's that's part of the thing as well. So, I mean, I think that's that's one of the drivers of electric yeah. vehicles and hybrid vehicles and so on is the fact of reducing emissions, not just saying, hey, let's, you know, um, we're going to run out of oil. I mean, it's the, the peak oil argument is gone. It, it's gone, right. right. Yeah. The, the other thing, too, is, you know, with all this talk of uh, infrastructure spending, part of that presumably would be the grid. Uh, even though it's shaky in places, the grid is there. You know, we don't have a hydrogen infrastructure. We don't have an all-fuel infrastructure. Uh, you know, if you're looking for an alternative, I'd say just because the grid's there, mm-hmm. electric cars have got the advantage in right. terms of going with any alternative. And let's remember that in 1903, there wasn't a gas station on every corner, and somehow... They figured it out. They figured it out. That's mm-hmm. right. Okay, we got another uh, phone call here. Carmen, let's bring in that other one. Hey, this... Hey, this is D-Man calling Cleveland, Ohio. All right. My comment is for the Ford people about the Echo Sport. I looked at it. It looks really good. And then I read something that I hope is a typo. It says that it won't be available to the North American consumers until 2018. WTF? Really? A year? Do you realize how technology changes in a year? I hope that's a typo. Tell me it is. If not, it better be damn good. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. No, great question, and it was not a typo. It is 2018. In fact, I think they're saying early 2018, so it may not even be 12 months. This could be 14 to 16 months before that shows up. And uh, car makers know that they're kind of behind, that they have to kind of shoot in front of their targets, so they uh, so they do kind of build that in. Uh, yeah, but why show the vehicle now? Uh, I don't get it. I don't know why they did it either. I, but they, You know, number one, Ford is now going to be the only major automaker in the U.S. market without a B-class crossover. Toyota's coming out with, what do they uh, call the, it? CHR. CHR. Toyota and Ford were the last, you know, to miss the biggest growing segment <laughs> in the business. And I'm just puzzled why Ford would... Throw that out there now. I think it's a good-looking vehicle. We got a picture of it up there. Mm-hmm. But I think in you know another 14 months, that design's gonna look dated. And I don't know it's why you would sell or, or show a car right now that's not going to be. Avi- I don't think people are saying, you know, uh, I was it, going to go, go get another Escape, <laughs> but I'm gonna wait. Okay, 16 months to get that other one. What, what, what do they have to show other, other than that? Why show it? Don't even show it. No, but I mean, if you have nothing to make news about, there's no, I mean, what new car do they have coming? Mm, well, I guess they did so show the new Fiesta, didn't they, in Europe? Yeah, they showed the new Fiesta in Europe, and it's a good thing they told us it was the new one, because I couldn't tell much of a difference. No, yeah. didn't. And if you uh, look at the uh, Fiesta sales so far this year. Oh, well, that's unfair. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that whole segment is oh, going in the tank. How far down are they? 35%? 
Um, well, for the month, they were only down 16.6%. But for the year? Of course, of course, if you're looking at the number, the total number is only like 2,800 vehicles. It's 45,000 vehicles for the year, down 26%. 26%. So they're no, not but, off as no, bad but, okay, as they thought. So, so Ford says, okay, we want to we show that we're still making cars, we're relevant, we got stuff going on here. And therefore, and, what do we have? Hmm, nothing. Oh, we got that Echo Sport. Let's bring that out. Yeah, I know. But in, in today's news cycle, everyone's already forgotten about the Echo Sport that was at the L.A. show. I, 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 I don't disagree with that, me, but I just, I... I wouldn't show it. I, I, I would make a big well, deal. Part of the play, too, is that they're going to assume that not... That 18 months from now, a lot of people are going to forget that they saw the vehicle <laughs> from L.A. In the, in the fall of 2016. I mean... When the advertising people get done right. in January of 2018, it's going to all look pretty fresh. I mean, well, you know, it's interesting because I called Lincoln this week to go, what's going on with this launch of the Continental? I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, there's been like next to no media coverage. There's next to no uh, advertising. You shut the damn plant down right in the middle of the launch. And uh, I, I don't get it. And they said, well, you know, uh, we didn't want to... Uh, do a whole lot of media drives and a whole lot of advertising until the car was in all dealerships. And I went, well, yeah, then why'd you show the Echo Sport 18 months in advance? It does, I mean, here's one side of the company saying you really shouldn't show anybody anything until you're ready to sell it. And here's the other side of the company going, hey, look at this. You can't buy it for more than a year. It's, that's where the last said they had to be consistent, right? I mean, so, so I, I, okay, I, was, I was thinking about that. And so would you say that the Cadillac CT6 is a competitor for the... Yes. Okay. So, so far this year through November, the CT6, 7,876 units have been sold. Yeah. Okay. It's been on sale since March. Right. Okay. Lincoln Continental. Lincoln Continental has been on sale since September. And they've sold... And nobody knows it. And they've sold 3,416. Yeah. Now look at the monthly number comparison. For Lincoln out, Continental outsold the CT6 All right, in so, November. So 14, it's not like there's been a lot of advertising. 14, 19 for the Continental. I watched the wrong You watched game. the wrong channels, Joe. They, they've, had a, they've got a print and a TV campaign. Right. Okay. So, so 1,169 CT6s and 1,419 yeah. Continentals. Yeah. See, so, so why should... Lincoln doesn't care. They're doing great. They're, they're, no, I, I, look, I think this is going to change launches. You don't really invite the media, some people. You don't really do much advertising. You shut the plant down in the middle of the launch because they make Mustangs there and they had too many Mustangs. And so they must have built a whole bunch of Lincolns ahead of time to, to weather themselves through that shutdown. And it outsells the CT6. If I'm Cadillac, I'm pulling my hair out. What's it take? <laughs> What's it take? Al know? Although, although I, I'm willing to bet that the Average transaction price for a CT6 is a hell of a lot higher than the average transaction price for Maybe, but base Maybe, price but to base price, the, they're right on top of each they, other. That's, that doesn't really count, does it? I, I this, just kind of, this, this industry runs in pure numbers. Pure numbers, yeah, right. But, and, and just to give you an idea, I just finished test driving uh, a Lincoln Continental Premium all-wheel drive, three-and-a-half liter, tw twin turbo, yada da 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 The sticker price was about 75000 bucks. <sighs> It was $4,000 more than the Genesis G90 I just test drove, too. So I think if you look at not, you raised the issue of transaction prices, and that's the right way to look at it. But if you look at base price to fully loaded, Continental versus Cadillac CT6, 
they're right on top of each other. So, like I said, the people at Cadillac must be ready to blow their brains out that with almost no media coverage and next to no advertising, Lincoln's now outselling so you, you them. you think some guy sitting there in, in uh, New York and the Cadillac building or whatever they call it there, scratching his head saying, maybe if we called it the DeVille, it would... Uh, well, that's what Trip, the, uh, you know, Trip Drake, the producer, said. They should have called it, you know... The well, he said DeVille. DeVille. It, it well, should I'm, be DeVille. Sedan DeVille. What, whatever. I mean, it's just... I mean, because, I mean, isn't part... I mean, think about it. So, so all of the other Lincolns are three-letter acronyms. You know, MKX, MKC, MKS... Yeah. MKZ. Stupid names. Then Continental. Get rid of them. Then Continental. Yeah. Well, and, and Navigator. And, and Navigator. They kept right. that, and too. Then, then Cadillac's got all of these, you know, Stupid alphanumerics. Names. Stupid and then, names. And Escalade. Well, the yeah, other thing. Right. The other, <laughs> which the is other. their best-selling vehicle. You know, <laughs> right. our, our biggest right. moneymaker, certainly. Yeah. So uh, maybe... The whole thing that keeps Cadillac alive, but we <laughs> should have that discussion. Right. But, I mean, so maybe, maybe just if they just have a name for the CT6... I mean, it would be it would be less confusing. Well, I'll bet somebody's studying that right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I, I mean, probably looking. Although, at although, although, although I was I was also looking at at the the XT5. Yeah, that's the crossover, right? Yeah, I, I just, and it's doing pretty well. That that should be their it's, best seller. It's, it's doing great. Yeah, and and I mean, but I just thought you know, and I compared that's that. That's a crossover. Of course, no, it's, it's a crossover. Yeah. But uh, we're flat where's, floor. That, where's that page? But. Uh, um, so I, th- I thought it was interesting. So we yeah, there's a picture of the. All right, so I T5. so um, XT5. So for the year, um, the XT5 has already sold thirty-two thousand vehicles. Well, do you have the November n- number? The November number is uh, fifty-three sixty-four. It's not a bad number for no. them. No, but what I thought was interesting is that I compared that against the MKC, the Lincoln. Yeah. For the year, sold twenty-two seven sixty-seven. Okay, so. The Cadillac's Cadillac is roughly 10000 above that. And yeah. then I thought, okay, let's, I'll throw in the MKX. And the MKX is uh, 27440 Again, the XT5 is outselling that. Yeah. And I haven't seen much advertising for that car. I've seen the CT6 commercials. Yeah. But I can't imagine. Have oh, you seen XT5? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I they got them. a full-blown yeah, TV I've campaign. Th- even I've seen the XT5 yeah? commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't DVR all my TV and just go right through those commercials. <laughs> you just have to watch. You have to watch some football every. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, look, I do. We, we got to wrap this up, uh, but uh, Joe Sesney, thanks for coming by, man. Oh, this, is, this has great. been a great discussion, and yeah. uh, and if you guys haven't been to the Piquette plant, I recommend it highly. Yes, absolutely. I wonder if they have heat there. Uh, I was they there in the in summer, new, so I couldn't tell they you. put in new lights, I've noticed, all around. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Lights throw off some heat. But. Yeah. Good deal, Gary. Yeah. Great to be back in the studio here. You know I it. love it. Okay. want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. Visit our website, Autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday afternoons. Get your daily fix with Autoline Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with Autoline This Week. There's all that and much more at Autoline.tv.
And I and I don't disagree with you. I just think that there's. I just think that. The, no, you and I. I don't disagree with you either. You know, it, it's just that. I just look at what the company's history has been, mm-hmm. and I just, I, you know, I just think, you know. I think they're too late. Well, it, maybe it's. I, I shouldn't say that. It's just that Uber is so out there. You know, GM and Ford. You know. Mercedes, Audi, everybody's, you know. And that's why they're not going to compete with them. Well, yeah, yeah. no, that makes total sense, Gary. Right. You've got to do something, to be something else. Ways. You have to go around them. Mm-hmm. But i got to believe, you know, it would have to be some sort of mobility service. Right. But I mean, okay, so, so you, live, you live in Manhattan, you live in, you live in San Francisco, you live in... Chicago. I mean, in Chicago, and, you know, and all these Why do you mobility, want yeah, and all you these, mo- right, exactly, and all these mobility services are going to be branded. And it, does Uber have such a small brand? I mean, such a powerful brand that if it's Uber and Apple or Uber and Ford and Uber, Apple and Ford, you know, who, which brand are you going to pick? Uber's probably not making any money at all. At least that—that's what the finance people tell right. me. And. And it's had to scale up on a massive basis. Now, that doesn't mean that Apple can't do that. But that's what Apple's going to have to do. But what if Apple, what if Apple comes out with a product that it's a premium product, as mm-hmm. all their products always have been? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go buy a Dell computer for a fraction of the cost of a, a right. Mac uh, yeah, forever. Exactly. Right. Right? A, a Dell laptop costs what? A third of what an Apple laptop Whatever. Costs. You know, and, and, and the same thing with the phones and just, you know, you can, you know, and this is, this is why I always find it funny when there's the, you know, the, they, they come out with the numbers of, you know, iOS handsets versus Android handsets and the Android handsets are way up here, you know, and because, you know, Android has... <coughs> You know, they don't charge people money for the software, and, and therefore you can have more cost-effective yes, handsets. But, but, but the thing with this is that people are paying this premium to Apple. Right. Right? I mean, it's always paying a premium. No, they love the Apple, cachet. They love the design. Apple never wants to have something that they're not making moolah off, as you were saying. So this is why I'm saying so, so it's, it's a premium product that basically is a transportation device that you can own that will take you a limited distance autonomously. Yeah, well, then you're talking a neighborhood electric. Of some sort or another. Right. But it's, it's a neighborhood electric that is, is designed to be a city vehicle. Correct. And so maybe what you do is you're sitting in your house and you have your iPhone or, or talking to your Apple TV or whatever the heck they're going to have to be like, oh, you know, the, the Amazon Echo thing. You, and you call and say, uh, you know, Jeeves, be outside. I'm leaving in a moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, there, here's this thing waiting for you, and you climb in this pod and say, take me to work. Yeah. And it takes you to work. But here's the thing, you know, because neighborhood electrics are limited to 35, streets. 35 miles an I hour. thought it was 25. It was 35. But, okay. Yeah. I, I think it's 25. I think it's 25. And so, you know, as, as long as you're comfortable using your Apple device. In the fenced-in area. In, in that geofenced 25-mile-an-hour area. Uh, then you're good to go. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, if you're living in a city, why own a car, even if it's autonomous? Even if it can go park itself, why? you still got to pay parking. Now, for the upscale customer that you're talking about, they probably don't care. $500 a month to park, that's nothing, you know, which is what they do in Manhattan. But... But okay, but the thing is, is which is more than your car payment? No, no, no for but, your, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but 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 whatever for your it is, rover, is but, remember, uh, remember there when um, 
you know, when Smart was coming out originally, there was this idea that because you could park more Smarts in an area that you'd have a reduced yeah. price sort of thing. Yeah. So you're not having a full-size car. You're not taking a full parking space. You're... It's, 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 it's Tell like, that to the Manhattan parking lot. But it's, see if they'll give you a discount. It's sort of like a cross between a, a you know, like a, a bicycle and a motorcycle. It's, but, she, but you're still paying more for your parking than you are. It doesn't the, matter. But, you own one. Yeah, you, but, you have one. But Yeah, but it's more than your car payment for the Range Rover that you're parking in that spot. Yeah, doesn't matter. No, yeah, I, I think... I bet I, there, there, would, there, would be, there would be specific parking for these well, things. Well, that's true. How many... How many I mean, um, you know, go to some parking structures in, in larger cities, and, and they offer... Free electric charging, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because they they want the cachet, right? So you want the cachet of the Apple car being in your garage. I so understand, but Uber wants to do the same thing. Lyft Uber's got cars; those are just but, cars. Uh, yeah. No, you no, 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 no. Uber's developing its own autonomous system. It's, a, it's an the autonomous car. Step. It's, it's, yeah. I, so it's not a car. The next step is to go to local motors and say, you know, print me up thirty of these you know cars what? for Pittsburgh. But you know, I. I, to me, Uber has already trashed its brand. You know, Uber is never going to have the cachet that, like, Gary's talking about. I mean, it's, Uber's for the common I, people. Well, you know, you're talking about Uber at this snapshot in time. Right. It could be very different Uber in five years. Okay, maybe. maybe. But I think no, brand, no, I'm, I'm just saying. Brand, I, brand building is a much maybe. harder exercise than, than, than I think some of these Silicon Valley people think, ask you know, ask Cadillac. How... Yeah, right. It ain't easy. <laughs> it ain't easy. Ask Elon Musk. Yeah, Even he's Elon... admitted this is yeah. hard stuff. Yeah. And he's not talking about his rockets. He's talking about, about his cars. the cars. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you sell selling 50 rockets to the government is one thing. Selling 500 cars to right. finicky consumers is a whole other ballgame. No, I, I, my own belief is uh, the Valley is... Unless they can come up with something really different, really super duper, charge a premium for it, I think the Valley is going to get tired of automotive in the next four years. Oh, and that's got, an interesting. Screw it's, that. It's too hard. Yeah, the too, hard, too hard. The margins are too low. It eats up too much cash. Which is what they originally it. said 15 years ago when they said, "Why should we even get into this business?" Yeah. Yeah. And then Elon Musk came along and said, well, isn't this exciting? And then they all, oh. Yeah, but he's yeah. not making any money See? either. You know, <laughs> you want those 40% margins. And, you know, he's nowhere near that. And then when Apple comes out with this transportation device. <laughs> yeah. well, well, we shall see. You know, the, to me, the, the real number is... You know, AAA publishes the cost per mile. It's forty-seven cents a mile is what it is right now with our cheap. What does the government allow on their? Uh, uh, it's probably that. It's probably that a little that. higher. I thought it was like sixty-five or well, seventy. It, it, it may have been higher, but you know, it's like because 40, forty-five cents a gas mile, prices have come cents. down so oh, much. I see. Okay, right. That's you know, right. because a couple of years ago the AAA number was fifty-nine cents a mile. Oh, that's I, right. I just yeah. looked it up. It's forty-seven cents. So if you want to get people to stop buying their cars and start buying your mobility, uh, and, and I'm a consumer who's just looking strictly at the cost of it, you've got to get below $0.47. Cents. I think it's real hard to do that right now. Real hard to do. Right. To cover Can't 40. do it with a human being driving it. Cannot do it. See, but the thing is, is that if you're Uber, 
And the human being is driving, he's driving his or her own car. Correct. You have no overhead costs right. related to that right. vehicle and maintaining exactly. that vehicle. Therefore, and they still don't make any money. Like John said. Well, it depends. See, but it's, it's, it, if, you your, if you play your cards right and you jump in at high traffic areas, right. you can make decent money. But if you got to take somebody down to the airport and there's nobody that wants to come out this way or vice versa, now, now you're working minimum wage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're hanging out around where there's, you know, downtown, people coming out of restaurants, making right. short trips, you know, concerts, you know, sports, you can make some good money. You can. But... That's the only time. So if you step into the system at that point, yeah, you can make money. But if I'm a consumer going, where the hell's an Uber car? It tells me I gotta wait 30 minutes? Screw that. I want my own car. But the real challenge is what Uber's working on now at, in Pittsburgh is autonomous cars. So you get ready, rid of that, that driver. But now where do you get the car? Like you say, Gary, they don't own the asset, right? They just borrow the asset mm. and they don't even pay for the borrowed time right. really well that you can get it well there's several places you can get it you can get it from car gary's car and my car we sit in the driveway half the time so they could borrow our car for no but i'm saying uh if oh but the autonomous car yeah yeah am i going to loan you my autonomous car probably not I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe I would, but my guess is Uber is going to have to own the asset at that point. Right. And now it's up to 47 cents a mile or thereabouts. And Hertz tried to do an on-demand Uber system in Europe, and they gave up. And I asked them why. I said, we owned the asset. We didn't make okay, any so, money. So, so right. this, is, this is why, you know, yeah, that, that announcement from, from VW yeah. of the Moia... Moya. Moya. I think. That's how I'm Whatever. Okay, so Moya. So think about this for a minute. And they're saying that by 2025, they plan to have significant revenue yeah. from this. They're going to be the leaders in the world. Okay, but think about this. Remember so, the last time they said that? So, so basically, <laughs> they're producing. So unlike Hertz, they're producing the vehicles. Right. Right? So they're getting them at a cost, the likes of which. Yeah, no, presumably at cost. Right. So, so but they still have to meet all the regulatory burden of every other car that they build. Well, they'll, they'll build. They'll, so, yeah, they'll, 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 they'll build normal cars. Be architecture. They'll just build normal cars. They just build these cars and they say, okay, yeah. we're we're, well, taking, we're to do these top hat these, on it. These we're selling to the the market. These we're keeping for our right. So right, we, which goes to it, which raises another issue. Will will you need all these designers to design future? You know. Autonomous cars. Because you're an interior designer. You're probably uh, you're in good stead. Absolutely. And you're an exterior and designer. You're going to have to design cars for mobility. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to design them so that you can quickly rip out the engine and put in a new one. You can right. Exactly. Cut the interior and put in a new one very quickly. Chop chop. Right. And, and they're not designed for that today. And also scraped up fenders or anything like that's got to be done and repainted and no time. Right. So you have to have the facilities that'll do that or use a service provider to give you that service. And then that service provider has got to have all those facilities. So I, I think this is where the Valley missed a lot of the, the granular complexity of the industry. They're just thinking, build a car. Oh, that's the easy part. <laughs>
Yeah, getting into you know getting into steer and fog. Anybody can do that. They yeah. do that with airplanes yeah. already. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. It's <laughs> the easy part. <laughs> that's the easy part. Yeah. Now getting it to get yeah. its oil changed. Yeah. Now that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Making a machine that thinks nothing. <laughs> well, that's changing the oil. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.